Hi, this is Tom Salami of Device Talks. Welcome to the Intuitive Talks podcast. Surgical Robotics presents an enormous opportunity for companies. There are surgeon shortages, sporadic healthcare, and miraculous technological advancement in both robotics and communications. So to understand where this sector is headed, we invited senior executives from Intuitive to share their company's impressive story. Change is coming. Consider these upcoming episodes to be guideposts for the future to follow. Hi, everybody. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Intuitive Talks podcast. We're going to talk about Intuitive's penetration into the markets in Asia today. I had the chance to speak with Glenn Vavoso. He is Senior Vice President and General Manager of the Asia Pacific Territories. And uh, we covered a lot of ground, including uh, his first job out of college, sort of. He was in the Navy and very interesting experience there. Uh, then we'll talk about his move into medtech. And finally, how surgical robotics is fitting into Asia's many markets, into China, into Korea. Each has its own unique uh, characteristic and uh, its own unique take and use of surgical robotics. And Intuitive is uh, doing extremely well there. So going to learn a lot from Glenn Vavoso today. But before we begin this episode, I wanted to tell you about Device Talks West, which is happening on October 18th and 19th, right near Intuitive's headquarters at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Very happy to have new president Dave Rosa as a keynote speaker. He'll be opening up day two, October 19th. He'll be our opening keynote interview. Uh, have had the chance to speak with Dave on the podcast, but that was before he assumed his new title. So very eager to catch up and to learn about what this means for Intuitive Future. So make sure you go to devicetalks.com. You can find the information, the agenda, the speakers for Device Talks West, and you can register there as well. Any Intuitive employees who would like to attend, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Be happy to tell you uh, how to make that happen. So uh, once again, Device Talks West, it's happening October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Very happy to have Dave Rosa as a uh, keynote interview, and we'll have some other great intuitive speakers as well. All right. Without any further delay, let's begin my interview with Glenn Vavoso, again, Senior Vice President and General Manager of APAC at Intuitive. Well, Glenn Vavoso, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tom. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. We normally start these conversations that we'll we'll get into the whole intuitive surgical and, and Da Vinci and Asia stuff later on. Let's get into the, the real reason I wanted to have you here. We'll talk about your path to medtech, but before that, I know prior to you joining the medical device companies, you were in the Navy. You served on Los Angeles class sub, USS Albany. Did you ever do a crazy Ivan? That's what I got to know. I uh, didn't exactly do a crazy <laughs> Ivan, but uh, they have come close uh, from time to time. How was that experience? You were, you were on a sub in the in the mid to late 80s, so I'm guessing you saw some things that you're you're not going to tell us about, but uh, give us an overall recounting of that experience. So what was that like? Well, you know, at times uh, it could be uh, described as maybe 99% sheer boredom, followed by 1% of sheer terror. <laughs> And you're always prepared for that 1%. Yeah. Uh, spent a lot of time preparing for that, for sure. But yeah, it was interesting times back then. That was 
when the the whole Berlin Wall was coming down and yeah. uh, the the whole dynamic with the Soviet Union. So really uh, interesting times, no doubt. I'm sure you were being asked to pay attention. And what was your uh, what was your role on the on the sub? Did you? What was your duty? Yeah, I was uh, one of the officers uh, on board. Had you know a variety of different roles. Uh, yep. Assistant weapons officer. I was uh, the damage control assistant, engineering assistant, engineering officer, na- uh, assistant navigator at the time. Yeah, so variety. You, you kind of do uh, rotations through different uh, specialties within the within the crew. And just finally, looking back, do you sort of just remember the? Well, you've talked about the ninety nine percent board and one percent terror. But just in terms of the accommodations, do you look back and say, no, that wasn't so bad? Or do you look back and say, thank God I don't live in a metal tube under the ocean anymore? Yeah, I did it for I did it for seven years. And I look back, I, I think you always remember the good times. Yeah. You don't remember the, the sort of the, the pains and the struggles that you go through. And, you know, the living accommodations, if you really think back on it, you'll go, oh, that was kind of tough. But, you know, it, it wasn't bad. It was well accommodated and it's sort of well known in the submarine force the, they have the best food so we always had you know really good meals and you know once you're under the uh, under the surface and uh, underwater you were you were good to go and didn't think too much about it that's very cool all right well let's get into the business at hand how did you uh move from serving our country to the medtech industry what was that path like yeah, it was a it was a little bit of a a winding road but i had a colleague a navy colleague of mine good good buddy and he was getting out of the Navy, and uh, he was telling me what he was going to do when he got out, which was to uh, help cardiologists with implantation of pacemakers and defibrillators. And huh. I was like, what do you know about the uh, heart and <laughs> cardiologists and heart doctors? You know, he was a submarine officer himself as well. And so he went on his way and uh, did did his thing. And uh, a couple months later, it was kind of my turn to get out. And I decided to go back to school and kind of retool with an MBA following my Navy career and ended up getting into the uh, aerospace business uh, mm-hmm. for a couple of years. But along the way, I was keeping in touch with uh, that Navy colleague. And he went on to work for a company called Guidant. Uh, it was a cardiovascular company. And sure. Ended up, uh, kind of long story short, uh, coming over to that organization, and I started as a, a clinical support representative. So uh, it was sort of supporting the sales team in the implantation of pacemakers and defibrillators and ended up uh, moving into sales. And I was with Guidant for 10 years, right up until the the Boston Scientific Acquisition and of course, right before that was it, it was almost a J and J company, but that uh, didn't quite work out. Uh, That's right. That way. Did you stay for long after the Boston Scientific acquisition? Was it your plan to stay? Were you invited to stay, or, or I'm not sure exactly how the different. I remember the acquisition. I don't remember how things were handled in terms of who stayed and who left. This was early uh, 2006, and um, you know, my intent at the time was I was going to be staying, but uh, as as things would go, I had a a neighbor of mine, I was living in Florida at the time, a neighbor of mine who was also working for a medical device uh, company, and we knew each other socially, he would tell me about this surgery company, and I would always talk about cardiology company, and he said, hey, you got to come and check out this robot thing, and and I, for a couple of years, didn't really pay too much attention to it, and then it was right at the beginning of that 2006 timeframe, uh, as we were going through the acquisition 
first with J&J, then Boston Scientific. And I was in, uh, at this point, I had moved to Indiana in the corporate office of Gaiden. Oh. And, uh, you know, with that kind of chaos going on, I said, well, let me take a look at, at what this company was about. And that was intuitive. Ended up getting a, a test drive on the technology. From there, sort of the rest is history. I ended up uh, coming over uh, in uh, March of 2006. Did it feel like a move to another medical device company to you, or did it feel more like the move from aerospace to the med tech industry? Was it uh, not quite the same? I would say it, for sure it was in you know healthcare, and so mm-hmm. understood the dynamics. Of having worked for Guidant for uh, ten years, you know it was going to be uh, working with uh, surgeons, uh, physicians, and kind of changing their beliefs. That was very much the same. I will tell you my you know having been involved with Guidant for that period of time, but and having the opportunity to sit on the Da Vinci and get a test drive, it becomes almost instantly recognizable that this is going to change surgery. Really? Uh, you know, you, you get that immediate kind of visceral feel of how good this is and what it could mean. And so to me, that was com- compelling and certainly a, lo- a lot different than I think, you know, pacemakers were at, at that time more of a commodity, if you right. will. And this, this was going to be a game changer. Yeah, and I, so I would suppose the pacemakers and the other things you were selling, you were probably using, relying more on on data and on information to make the sale and relationships as well. But when you've got a sort of a game-changing technology like a robot, you must really kind of light the fire inside of you to really kind of tell its story and, and tell it correctly to an interested customer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Very cool. So you moved your way up through uh, the sales ranks. How, how did you come to uh, begin working in the Asia territory, which you, you now oversee? Yeah, I've been uh, with Intuitive for the last 17 years and uh, almost for the last 10 years have uh, spent time supporting our, our Asian markets. If you look at Asia as a region for us over that 10 years, it was a, a geography that uh, was mostly managed through distributor relationships. It was as we were developing as an organization, putting a lot of focus into our US, following our, our European operations. Asia at that time was was managed with uh, distributors who, in those early days, did, did a wonderful job of getting things going in Asia. But it was clear it was uh, time for us to make some transitions in the major markets uh, of Asia. And so I was uh, involved in kind of sales operations team at that time. And in 2013, we're uh, looking to take uh, Japan from a distributor selling model to a direct selling model where we were going to be now directly involved in the market uh, as, as an organization. And so was asked to come over and start to assist with bringing on a new team, getting them trained up sort of on our commercial operations processes and and really starting uh, to develop our, our business model. Is there a standard tripwire that sort of indicates now is the time we move from a distributor model to an in-company model? What is it? Is it the volume of business? Is it the the intricacy of the technical assistance that's needed? What sort of makes that move more wise and prudent? Well, I think there's a variety of factors that can come into to play. Sometimes it's a moment in time for us where we can say we can kind of take on more. You probably have heard from others at Intuitive, we are always a very focused organization. We try to focus on the vital few. As you kind of bring up the maturity in other parts of the globe, uh, we've made the choice, okay, now we can sh- 
you know, stretch ourselves and uh, move into other markets and put the right time and attention into that. That's one factor that you assess. The other might be, you know, for us at that time in Japan, uh, it's the second largest medical device market in the world. You realize you're, you, you have to be close to the customer and directly, directly involved. And so it was, uh, you know, a key strategic need for us to do that. In maybe some other markets, it might be uh, you don't have a good succession plan for the current distributor that's in there, and they may want to move on to other things. And you you realize that uh, in order uh, to be effective, then you you've got to kind of take over that operation. Interesting. So, how are surgical robots seen in the various Asian countries? I've covered it from the U.S. side. I remember when it first came out, and it was seen as by some as a novelty, they didn't think it was really necessary. Then the convincing became, and then the data became available. And now I think everyone's on board to this being the future. They saw what you saw when you first tried the, the system 17 years ago. What has the progression been like? Uh, we can start with Japan, but maybe I'm sure it's different from country to country, but what what is the transition, But what is the adoption or attitude towards surgical robotics been like in Japan and other Asian countries? Yeah, I could take maybe a specific, uh, you know, Korea is always a, a country uh, from a medical perspective that is always looking to the future, I think, uh, always certainly uh, prize themselves on their minimally invasive techniques and want to kind of push that. And so they saw robotics as an evolution of laparoscopic technique and and so kind of pushing the bounds on that technology. So I think in general, looked uh, looked upon it as uh, very, very positively. Broadly, I would say throughout Asia, MIS or laparoscopy is more highly penetrated than many other parts of the globe. And, mm. and so already a mindset that MIS is good for the patient. And of course, they're very discerning as to how they're going to go from that technique to a new technique and what is that going to mean for the patient. But they definitely look to push the curve on the technology. I think one dynamic that uh, was also unique in Asia is maybe compared to the U.S. U.S. adoption happened sort of very sequentially. It was urology followed by gynecology and then general surgery, and uh, it evolved that way. In, in Asia, I think because of the perspective looking at what was going on in the U.S. with uh, robotics adoption, you now see the adoption across all those specialties almost in a simultaneous way. Hmm. And so for, for us as an organization, you know, we're always, uh, again, trying to figure out how to best support our customers across multiple adoption curves within different specialties. So when you started in serving Asia in, in the Asian market in, in 2017, was there one or two applications that were dominant and that you were sort of helping to bring into Asia? It certainly started in urology, but then quickly moved into general surgery, and then gynecology also started to move forward. But initial applications were still prostatectomy, partial nephrectomies, but then there was a lot of interest in uh, HPV surgery. In Japan, it quickly moved into gastrectomy, colon and rectal surgery. Some of that was driven by a very positive uh, reimbursement changes because the socialized healthcare system saw the the value to the patient and to the economics of the, the health system. No, I was going to ask about that because we've obviously seen, particularly in China, 
cuts to reimbursement that are hitting other medical device companies or medical device companies harder. I think those with the more implantable kind of consumable products. Have those cuts and that cost consciousness, we'll, we'll say in China, has that impacted Intuitive at all? I know it's one of your biggest markets. How are you countering that or, or do you have to counter that at all? I think just like any other country, uh, China is no different in that you've got to establish the clinical value first and foremost, and then for hospital executives and maybe even more so government officials and the the officials that are over the the healthcare system, uh, what is the uh, ultimately the economic value that robotics might provide? And so that is no different in China. I think maybe what other industries have experienced in China with changes in reimbursement policy or changes just in pricing and price controls, uh, that has not yet uh, sort of found its way to, to robotics in the same fashion. Mm-hmm. It's still, in many ways, uh, early days of adoption in China. They want to see the robotic healthcare industry be supported in these early times. And so where you see those general price controls happen with where there are many competitors, uh, it's more of commodities, yeah. and they're looking to control healthcare costs. How did the Da Vinci systems physically fit into the spaces in hospitals in, in China? I don't know if they're built similarly to in the US. I don't know if the ORs are bigger or smaller. How do the surgical systems, again, fit into existing infrastructure? Is it easier than it's been in the US, more difficult? I would say the same. If I blindfolded you, put you in a operating room in China or an operating room in Korea or Japan, uh, took the blindfold off, you would think you're in any kind of operating room that exists in the U.S. Sometimes they're smaller, sometimes they're the same size, uh, large that, you know, varies, but, uh, you know, our system works just fine in just about any operating room in any of those countries. Interesting. Well, staying in China, how are you? This is you've identified this as your second largest market behind the U.S. Uh, it's, it's I think your fastest growing, and correct me on that if I'm wrong. What steps are you taking to cement that position and to uh, encourage that growth? China is the second largest procedure market uh, for Da Vinci surgery, and you know it's one of the fastest growing markets that we have. You know, Asia overall, the uptake has been. Good, it's been well validated by uh, surgeons and societies. You know, in China, it is a market that is historically has been capped on how many systems can be imported and installed over a given period of time. Uh, so they haven't they have a very carefully planned allocation plan for large medical equipment of which uh, robotics fits into. And you have to go through a process of first making sure that the province gets a certain allocation of that. And then the hospitals then apply uh, for that allocation and uh, they get the ability to move forward with their business plan to install a a surgical uh, robotic system. And so just like all the other geographies, we have a well-trained team that uh, supports the hospitals talks through the technology with surgeons. We do all of our customer training uh, within China, across China. Uh, So very similar to other markets once you have the ability to install the the DaVinci system. And what are you doing in terms of 
building manufacturing and, and other operations in China. I know you you invested $100 million, I think, in a center in Shanghai. What are the plans in that regard? We operate through a, a partnership there. Uh, it's a, a joint venture with Fosun Pharma. It's been a, been a very good uh, partner over the last uh, six, seven years. One that was part of that investment uh, as we're then building out uh, some of our infrastructure there, which will include some manufacturing capability, uh, some moderate uh, research and development, and then uh, training uh, capability uh, in an innovation center for surgeons that build out is underway in, in Shanghai. Interesting. And how about on the Korea side? You mentioned Korea earlier on. Is there a particular type of system that is selling well in Korea? Is it the, the single port? Is the multi-port? Is there a particular focus for the products you're selling there? Yes, we uh, we sell both the uh, multi-port XI system and our uh, single port SP system. In fact, Korea was the first uh, country in the world to receive approval for the uh, SP uh, back in late uh, 2018. Mm. And uh, as I was uh, saying earlier about uh, Korean surgeons, always looking to go beyond in making things more minimally invasive for them, SP was was very, very compelling. And so as they've adopted uh, SP, uh, we see our Singapore systems in Korea utilized to a level uh, equivalent to our, our multi-port platform. Interesting. And already uh, Korea is a, a country that the multi-port platform is uh, some of the highest utilization in the world. So uh, it was interesting to watch them adopt and apply SP uh, in that uh, environment. And they, I think for Korean surgeons, maybe even more so than multi-port, saw it as a big step from a multi-port laparoscopic procedure that, wow, this was, I could go to one incision and provide all the benefits that I've been finding minimally invasive, but I now have one port to go through with an expectation and a, and a hope to better patient outcomes, quicker recovery with that one port. And there's even a cosmesis benefit that they take a look at. Do the XPs and the SPs, do they coexist? Will a hospital have one of each or multiple of each? Or is it sort of, this is an SP facility, that's a that's a multi-port facility? Yeah, they'll generally have an XI or multiple XIs. In uh, Korea's case, we have, we have many hospitals there that have multiple XI systems. It's, it's a very concentrated uh, uh, market uh, within Seoul. So they'll have usually many XIs and then an SP or two or three alongside those XIs. And what is the, the competitive landscape like in Asia for surgical robotic systems? There's obviously a few U.S. multinationals that are trying to develop systems, a few in Europe that have developed systems. There's a few companies emerging from China that are developing their own systems. Have you had the field mostly to yourself up until this point? And do you foresee, do you see that changing over the next couple of years? Well, in Asia, there are 11 active market-released uh, competitive robotic wow. systems. Oh, okay. Shows so, you what uh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I would say it's a, it's a very active market for uh, surgical robotics in that space. There are five in China, two in Japan, one or two in Korea, and a few others in, in India. So it's uh, we experience... A number of different players uh, coming to market, and you know, it's not just that they're developing it; they're actually on the market. We know. I know the penetration of of surgical robotics 
in the U.S. remains fairly low in surgical robotic systems to, to hospitals remains fairly low. What is it like in Asia? Is there a deeper penetration? Is it a larger percent of hospitals already own systems or, or is it a similar, you're in single digits teens right now and, and you just see nothing but, but opportunity for growth going forward? I would see it not much different than the U.S. I, okay. I think uh, there's probably more, uh, there is more opportunity in front of us than there uh, is behind us, even over the last uh, 25 plus years. If you look at most of the top tier institutions in you know the three major markets of Korea, China, and Japan, I would say they are all highly penetrated with at least one Da Vinci system in there. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the top top tier uh, sort of institutions. But there are many more surgeries and many more patients that can be treated across the entire healthcare system. Generally, the you know the penetration there is, I would say, broadly similar to the U.S. But uh, from a segmentation, very well penetrated in the uh, academics and the higher tier uh, institutions. And uh, how about the uh, the ion and, and other? Is that selling? there yet in your other systems? Do you see the same potential for those systems going forward? We're excited uh, about the prospects of what ION will do for diagnosis of lung cancer in Asia, but not yet uh, on the market. And final question. I'm just, I try not to ask COVID questions anymore, but this was obviously, I'm guessing the years 2020 to 2022, 23 were fairly challenging for you. How did it change how you were approaching the market, how you manage sales? in Asia? And did it create some lasting changes that actually made your process more streamlined and more more efficient? Yeah, I think it changed uh, a couple of uh, different ways in which we operate today. In some ways, it it, it gave us a, a, a greater reach because you, you couldn't meet face-to-face and that we had to adapt to that. And, and creating uh, events and opportunities to share the value story and just the technology. And even as we're getting to launch uh, products and and getting uh, centers ready for that, we had to do a lot of that remotely. It was just earlier this year that China finally opened up. So Mm -hmm. it's been been a long run of not being able to travel into those countries or even for our own local teams to get out and about and get into the hospitals to uh, uh, support our customers. So we had to figure out how to do that very much in a remote way. And and so it opened up, I think, in many ways, the engagement of surgeons to us as a company, us to the surgeons and hospital executives, maybe in environments where you wouldn't normally use that kind of remote technology. We're seeing that very much a part of our routine now. It's it's you can expand your reach in a kind of a one-to-many fashion versus just a one-to-one. And so now I think it's sort of that more hybrid kind of setup of uh, having those conversations, supporting our customers, and they're very open to it now. Where I, I think four years ago, that would have never crossed their mind that we could in, we can engage in this way. And even even for us, even for us as a company, from a, a corporate perspective, that while we couldn't travel, uh, we had the opportunity to interact with a lot of customers remotely. You know, for me, my personal reach uh, was probably improved just over those uh, three years. So, so you were engaging with the physicians as well as your partners there or? Directly with our team, directly with uh, surgeons, directly with hospital executives. Wow. Uh, and, you know, there was some nice aspects of that, that you could quickly set up those uh, communication links without necessarily having to be on a plane all the time. And 
and sort of uh, maximizing the efficiency of that. And again, I think that's what's changed is that we can do that in a hybrid way. Not, not, nothing beats face-to-face uh, sure. in this, but uh, certainly having remote capability and be able to connect with video is uh, is a great addition. Right. Well, I hope it means uh, you're getting on, on a plane a little bit less uh, once things start going again. Yeah, well, it's it's actually picking up more right now. <laughs> I bet. Now that Asia, Asia is open for business. Awesome. Well, interesting stuff. Thank you uh, for joining us on the podcast, Glenn. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. All right, well, that is a wrap. Thanks again to Glenn Vivoso for joining us on the podcast. Once again, join us at Device Talks West. It's happening on October 18th and 19th. We'll hear from Dave Rosa and other great folks from Intuitive and other surgical robotic companies as well. It's going to be a great couple of days. It's paired with our Robo Business Meeting, which is another conference put on by our parent company, WTWH Media. So uh, it'll be a, a wonderful and informative two days for anybody in the robotics business or in the medical device business. We'll be talking about much more than that at Device Talks West. So go to Device Talks dot com for more information please make sure you subscribe to the device talks podcast network so you don't miss any future episodes of intuitive talks or our other great podcasts you can find the device talks podcast network on any major podcast player finally connect with me on linkedin i am tom s-a-l-e-m-i if you want more information about device talks west you can reach out to me there intuitive employees would like to attend reach out to me there would love to tell you more about the event and how you can register well that'll do it thanks again for joining us on this episode of the intuitive talks podcast